you learn to trust someone as you interact with them, as you speak with them, as you learn their character. You want to trust God more? Find yourself not trusting Him enough? Spend more time with Him. Try Him out a little bit. You don't trust somebody right away. You give them a little responsibility. If they handle that responsibility well, you give them a little bit more responsibility. If they handle that well, you give them a little bit more, right? That's what we do with our children. When they prove they can handle the responsibility you've given to them, you give them more. Well, God doesn't have to prove Himself to us, but He does. You test Him. You say, God, I'm going to leave this with you. I'm going to place this in your hands. I'm going to trust your word in this respect. And you'll find Him faithful. And as you find Him faithful, you'll have the confidence to trust Him more. To give more to Him. To lay more on the altar. That's what the hymnist is praying for there. Grace to trust Him more. I've proved Him. I've tested Him. I've tried Him. And He's shown Himself faithful time and time again. Oh, for grace to trust Him even more. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in your Bibles this morning. Title of the sermon, Charity Above Liberty. Several weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we spent uh, a group, uh, uh, some time, on a group of messages, a series I entitled Lawful But Not Expedient. We looked at four particular areas of our lives where things are lawful. It is not inherently sinful for us to do them, but it may not be expedient for us to do them. The essence of that series was rooted in Paul's statement. It was given within the context of fornication that though we as God's people have many freedoms in Christ, our freedoms are not intended to secure for us a love for this world or the things of this world or a joy in that which the world delights in, but rather it's meant to be a means of living and interacting in this world for the purpose of evangelizing the lost and glorifying God and edifying the believer. So we talked about amusements, and we talked about appearance, and we talked about music, and we talked about substances. And as we talked about these four areas, we highlighted things that, though they aren't necessarily sinful, when we understand what's going on, when we understand the culture surrounding them, when they understand the direction they put us in, or the ways in which they nudge us towards sin, we would be wise to limit ourselves or place protections in our lives surrounding those areas as well as others in order that we can be serving God properly and be edifying the brethren. And as we talked about all of those things, there was one direction that we didn't go and the reason why we didn't go there is because we were going to go there now in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. When we talk about the limitations of our liberty, those things which are lawful but not expedient, certainly we talk about things that might become sinful or could put us in the direction of sinfulness or are surrounded by sinfulness and so there might be a testimony issue or whatever the case may be. But today we're going to consider another area, a very important area of our lives where we can easily abuse the liberties that we have in Christ. Those things that are lawful, another reason why these things may not necessarily be 
expedient. And as we look at it, it is actually the most essential of all reasons to be temperate in regard to the freedoms that we have in Christ. And while it is probably the most essential of all reasons, it is also probably the most difficult of all reasons. You know, it's very easy for us to limit ourselves when we feel like there's a good reason, a good benefit to us. It's easy for me to avoid certain foods because when I look in the mirror, I have to look at myself. And when I start to see a little extra flab or when the pants start getting a little bit tight and I can't really get those buttons together on the pants, I start to realize that I need to limit myself a little bit more and that's not a problem because I want to be able to fit into my pants. And so it's somewhat easy when there's a personal motivation, just like with sin or with those liberties that we have in Christ, it's easy for me to avoid certain things. I see the direction that thing could point me, the direction I could go with it. I want to be careful. I don't want to go in that direction. I'm going to limit myself. That might be easy for me. But where it becomes really difficult is limiting ourselves for the sake of others. Paul addressed Christian liberty and responsibility concerning physical intimacy in chapter 7 and chapter 6. He addressed Christian liberty and responsibility concerning marriage among those in the church in chapter 7. Now Paul's going to address Christian liberty and responsibility concerning things offered to idols. And as he does so, he's going to particularly turn his direction toward the conscience of others. This past week, I told you, my wife and I went up to Duluth for just a couple of nights, stayed in a hotel. We went swimming. Now, my daughters, we went swimming regularly in the lake last year, and we got them to where they were very comfortable in the lake. So we'd go, and they'd have a great time, and they'd giggle, and they'd laugh. And, and now, that wasn't the way it was at the beginning of last summer. They were very skeptical of the lake, very fearful of the lake. Uh, Alethea was actually kind of cat-like. You know, she'd jump up on my head and, and, and dig into my cheeks and be holding on with every, and, and she was shaking and she was tense and, she, and it was really kind of comical except it hurt. Well, we get up there. There's a swimming pool. The swimming pool was fairly warm, at least the first day. It seemed to cool down as we were there. Maybe it was all in my head. But um, it was fairly warm the first day. It was an indoor pool. And, and Karis had a great time the first day. And Alethea was very skeptical. That was Wednesday night, so Thursday morning we go back and we get in the pool again. Uh, Alethea eventually loosened up, and so we get in the pool again, and Alethea just jumps right in. And now Karis didn't want to get in. And so we're going back and forth with the girls. Uh, by the end of that day, neither one of them wanted to get in. They were both afraid, and we had to kind of um, come at things from a back door in order to get them to enjoy the pool a little bit. But Karis developed this nervousness. Not just for herself, but for daddy. And so I'd be playing in the water, and I'd be encouraging her to come in, and I'd go under the water. And when I came out of the water, my wife would inform me that Karis had been very nervous that I was under the water. Telling daddy, no, no hiding under the water, daddy. No hiding under the water. Don't hide under the water. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I'd start to go under the water again, and she'd point, and she'd say, no, daddy, no hiding under the water. She didn't like me going under the water. 
it made her very uncomfortable to see me go under the water. Now, there's nothing wrong with me going under the water. I am perfectly capable of going under the water and being just fine. I know how not to swallow water. I can hold my breath. I can blow bubbles. I've got all of those skills down. No problem with daddy going under the water. Except that my daughter didn't like it. Now, I could have been, you know, fun daddy and play games, tease my daughter, keep going under the water, keep threatening to go under the water, all of that. But as I was interacting with my daughter, I noticed some true concern. And so I decided that I'm not going to go under the water so that my daughter will not be concerned. You know, there's going to come a point where she's going to realize, she's going to learn how to hold her breath, she's going to realize it's okay, and she's going to be just fine with me going under the water. But for this time, it offends my daughter a little bit. It concerns her when I go under the water. There's no need for me to go under the water, so I'm just going to stay above the water. I had all liberty to go under the water, but I I didn't do it for the sake of my daughter. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 8. The things that we you can do in your Christian life, you have all liberty to do them. But it may just be that someone else is going to have a hard time with it. It may just be that somebody else's conscience is going to be offended by it. And it is not just our responsibility to take care of ourselves in this Christian life. And we don't like that as Americans. It's not an American thing. Americans are kind of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. If you don't like it, tough, deal with it. My life is my life. You're just going to have to get over it. That's kind of, a, it's kind of American sentiment in a lot of ways. But that's not what the Bible is saying today. The Bible is going to be encouraging you today to consider your actions in light of your brother's conscience. To consider your actions within the context of the brethren. We've mentioned before a large part of what is going on in the church of Corinth. The culture of the Jews was conflicting with the culture of the Gentiles. Look with me beginning in verse 1. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. There were many elements of Jewish culture under the law which were right, and were godly, and were virtuous. In fact, Paul would say in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. See, it's not that when Christ came, He invalidated the goodness and the righteousness of the, of the law. The Scriptures tell us rather that He fulfilled all the righteousness of the law in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he didn't invalidate the law, he fulfilled the law. We talked about this a little bit on Tuesday evening. For those of you that were here on Tuesday night, that there is 
there was the law of Moses, and the law of Moses was not wrong, but it was indeed fulfilled. And then there's the law of God, that which, is that which God expects of all generations and all people. The expectations of the law were not wrong, but the Holy Spirit of God has freed us from the debt associated with the expectations of keeping the law. And so Romans chapter 8, verses 2-4 through 4 says this, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So the law was fulfilled in Christ in order that the law could be fulfilled in us through Christ. And that was the intent. That was why Christ was sent. So as we think about the church of Corinth, we think about two cultures that were colliding. The Jewish culture, which regarded the law and appreciated the law. Even the Christian Jews appreciated the law and often exercised the law. And the Gentile culture, which had no concept of the Mosaic Law and had no interest in the Mosaic Law. And as we look in the book of Acts, we find that the Council of Jerusalem recommended very few things that were necessary for the Gentiles to keep in regard to the law. And that even that was not necessary for salvation, but simply those things that they said, these are things that you ought to encourage the Gentile believers to do. And that was to abstain from fornication, to not eat of things that were strangled, and to not eat of the blood of animals. And in this modern world, we don't preach the law as obligation. We understand our freedoms in Christ. But as we understand our freedoms in Christ, we also need to understand the responsibilities that come with those freedoms. Paul's expectation of the church of Corinth would be that they'd understand their liberties, they'd understand their responsibilities, and that they would live a life that properly reconciled their liberties and their responsibilities for the sake of the brethren and for the testimony among unbelievers. And that is our responsibility in the modern day as well that we would understand the righteousnesses that were in the law, that we would understand the debts and the limitations of the law, that we would recognize the freedoms that we have in Christ and the benefits which those freedoms bring within the context of ministry and the context of testimony, and then that we would carefully balance our liberties and our responsibilities through a life of virtue and godliness. Sounds kind of tough, doesn't it? Balance is one of the hardest things in any life, isn't it? That's what God is asking us to do day in and day out. To live a balanced Christian life. Liberties, responsibilities. Bringing them together so that we are not abusing our liberties and we are not withholding liberties unnecessarily, but we are living a balanced life of liberty and responsibility. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. See, through the Holy Spirit, we can live a balanced life. And part of that is what Paul is going to be teaching today. It is also ironic, as we think about this task, that in some ways, the more you understand the Word of God, the more difficult this task can become. 
the scriptures um, are deep. And the more you know, as anything in life, the more you know, the more you understand. And the more you understand, the more responsibility is placed on you to use your knowledge effectively. I saw a cartoon not too long ago. The old adage goes that if you... I told some of you this. The old adage goes that if you uh, don't understand history, you're destined to repeat it. And the comic has two old guys sitting in chairs. And one guy says... If you don't understand history, you're destined to repeat it. If you do understand history, then you're destined to sit by and watch as everyone else repeats it. Right? Isn't that what we see in, in, in politics today? There's plenty of us that understand that the United States is heading down the exact same path as the Roman Empire. There's plenty of us that understand the United States is heading down the same path that Nazi Germany was heading down just 60, 70, 80 years ago. And yet, it's happening. Because there's enough ignorant people that it's going to be repeated. And so with ignorance, there is something to be said for the phrase ignorance is bliss. With knowledge comes responsibility. And the more knowledge you have, the more responsible you are. But there's also a great blessing that comes with knowledge. Because as you have the knowledge of the Word of God, as you have the knowledge of your liberties and responsibilities, and as you live out those liberties properly, and you adhere to your responsibilities properly, you can teach others, you can be a testimony to others, and you can help others. The most damaging ministries out there are the ministries that do not understand either how to limit their liberties and live in their responsibilities, or they do not understand their liberties, and so they limit everyone in legalistic responsibility. Those are dangerous ministries, and they have harmed a great number of people spiritually. And so with this, with this knowledge comes this responsibility, and we are going to be gaining some of that knowledge today. So the next problem that Paul brings up in the church of Corinth is a contention between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians concerning meat that is consecrated unto idols. Specifically, eating meat that had been offered unto idols. The idea here is that there would be a portion of a piece of meat left following sacrificing of that meat to a deity. That meat would be put on the altar, it would be burned, there would be pieces of that left. This was true of most sacrifices of the day. We know it was true of the sacrifices in the temple complex for the Jewish religion that the Levites and the priests were intended to eat of the, the um, sacrifices on the altar that the Jews were to bring. But it was also true of oftentimes many pagan sacrifices. This piece of meat would either be eaten sacrificially or it would perhaps be taken and sold after the sacrifice was complete and eaten by someone else later. And so there was contention with these Christians over whether it was right or wrong to partake of this meat, seeing that this meat had been consecrated, this meat had been dedicated to false gods. It had been dedicated to idols. And Paul's first statement is found in verse 1. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Paul's response was one of warning about how we go about conducting ourselves within, with regard to the liberties that we have in Christ. Many in the church recognize their freedom to eat this meat. 
But the issue was not whether or not they were free to eat this meat in Christ, but much rather whether or not eating this meat would be right under the circumstances because of the believers that they had surrounding them. So Paul says we all have knowledge. To some degree or another, you understand the liberties that you have in Christ. Maybe some of you understand your liberties better than others do. Maybe some of you disagree on some of the liberties that you have in Christ. We all have knowledge. But that is not the issue, folks. The issue is not whether or not you know your liberties. That can be kind of tough, particularly for this age of Christianity. It's really not an issue about whether or not you understand all the liberties you have in Christ. The issue is what you do with your knowledge. He says, knowledge puffeth up. The issue was one between those whose conscience allowed them to take advantage of their liberties and to eat this meat and those whose consciences did not allow them to take advantage of this liberty or those who did not realize that they have this liberty in Christ. And so when you exercise your knowledge, you have a responsibility. When you exercise your liberty in Christ, you have a responsibility. And your responsibility is not to exercise this liberty at the expense of a fellow Christian's conscience. When you boldly exercise your liberty and you say, well, I don't care what the others think. If, if they think that that's wrong, that's their problem, not mine. That's pride. Knowledge puffeth up, Paul says. It's pride. If you just barrel yourself into a situation where there's a bunch of Christians and you assume, yeah, there will be some there that may be offended by my personal liberty choices and you're just going to go ahead and make those anyway and flaunt yourself before them, that's pride. Knowledge puffeth up. But charity edifieth. We've seen this word puffed up several times in the book already. It's found in chapter 4, verse 6. When the believers were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And they were trying to segregate themselves based upon their teacher. Paul said, you're puffed up. It's found in chapter 4, verse 18. People that were puffed up believing that Paul would not come again. They had exalted themselves against the apostle. Paul said, you're puffed up. It's found in chapter 4, verse 19 as well. That they are puffed up. Found in chapter 5, verse 2. And then here in chapter 8, verse 1. All of these times, Paul had charged the church of Corinth with being proud. And it's the same kind of pride, same word, that he uses to describe them as they abuse their liberties at the sake of, for the sake of another man's conscience, or at the expense of another man's conscience, as the word that he used when they were not mourning over fornication in the church. As the word that was used when they were dividing themselves against each other based upon the teacher that they had had, whether it's Apollos or Paul or Peter or Christ. And so we're talking about the same element of pride here. It's just as much pride for us to live in our liberties at the expense of a, belie a fellow believer's conscience as it is for us to allow a man to be living in open sin in the church and not to rebuke him and not to rebuke that sin. It's the same pride. And that's what Paul is saying here. 
On the contrary, to exercising our knowledge. Notice what Paul says. If you are compelled to live according to charity, that's love, loving one another with a selfless love, you will become an edification rather than a hindrance to the spiritual walk of your brother. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes you proud. But what edifies? Charity. Selfless love. Placing that person and their needs and their concerns ahead of my own. The kind of love that says, even though it's okay for me to go under the water, I'm not going to go under the water because it concerns my daughter. Because it literally, you can see on her face the worry when I'm about to go under the water, so I'm not going to go under the water so that she won't be worried. Now in time, I'll explain to her why she doesn't have to be worried. She'll grow, she'll mature, and then maybe I can go under the water. But I love my daughter enough to limit myself for her. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifies, builds up another. Verse 2, Paul says, If any man think he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, as he ought to know. See, here's the problem. When we are focused upon what we know above that which others know, and therefore what we think we can do above that which others think they can do, we've already completely missed the character of God. We've completely missed what we ought to be doing and knowing in this life. Say, well, I can do that, so bless God, I'm going to do that. You've missed it. You've missed it. You've missed God's character. You've missed how He operates. You missed how He operated when He was on this earth, Jesus Christ. You missed how He expects you to operate. When we're busy asserting our liberties or trying to convince others why I can or why they can do something, we show that we really know nothing at all. But on the contrary, verse 3 says this, If any man loves God, that is known of him. The same is known of him. On the contrary, regardless of the liberties you retain or regardless of the liberties you release, you will be known as a man or a woman who loves God. God. And this matters, folks. You know, there are a lot of people out there and there are a lot of churches that are exercising certain liberties. There are places that other churches have gone that we would not choose to go. We don't go there for various reasons. Some of those things we do indeed believe are wrong. Others of those we believe are inappropriate. Some of them we think will put us toward a path of wrong and so we don't want to go there. Take our new members course, you'll understand many of the decisions we've made as far as music, as far as dress, as far as our non-age segregated model. All of these things that we do because we believe that they are best, but we're not necessarily saying that other churches because they don't do what we do are wrong. And yet, We look at those churches and you interact with some of those men, some of those pastors, some of those members, and you realize, you know what, these folks really do love God, don't they? Legacy Baptist Church is not the only church with people in Buffalo that loves God. And if any man loves God, the same is known of him. 
Paul says, whether you're living in your liberties or not, you will be defined not by your liberties or not exercising your liberties. You'll be defined by whether or not you love God. And as we step into our time together, I'd like to encourage you to build within your heart and life a mindset of deference, of putting the spiritual welfare of others ahead of our own self-interests and ahead of our own liberties in Christ. And when we do this, when you do this, you will become a man or a woman not defined by what you think you can do or think you can't do or do, do, or don't do. You will be defined as a man or a woman who loves God. Because it's not going to be the exercising of your liberties or the restraint of your liberties that's going to shine forth. It's going to be your virtue and the fruit of the Spirit in your life that will shine forth. Because if any man loves God, the same is known of him. And that's what we want. Verse 4 says this, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. As Paul teaches a portion of this lesson in chapter 8, he's going to use their question about eating meat that's been offered unto idols. He's going to answer it and he's going to use it to springboard into this teaching on liberty. To those with knowledge, we recognize that that idols are nothing. They're nothing but rock and stone and metal and jewels flesh, blood, they're nothing. So for me to be offered in sacrifice unto a false god is absolutely meaningless. It really is meaningless. Nothing more than pagan devotion to an object with zero spiritual value. There's only one god, and a pagan offering to a false god upon a material object doesn't do any damage to the meat any more than it blesses the meat. Placing the meat on an altar to Baal doesn't damage it any more than placing the meat on an altar to God blesses it. The meat doesn't change. It doesn't become something special. We know that. We talk about that somewhat regularly when we talk about communion, the Lord's Supper. We don't believe in transubstantiation. I don't bless the elements before I hand them out and therefore they become something special. It's not the actual blood of Jesus Christ that you're drinking. It's not the actual flesh of Jesus Christ that you're eating. We don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that these are inanimate objects and they are are nothing as far as morality goes. Meat is no better or worse because it's been offered to an idol. So we know that we have this understanding, but that's not what matters. Paul elaborates in verses 5 and 6. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Whether in heaven or on earth, there are many things that are called gods. But in fact, we know that there's really only one God, one capable of blessing and cursing things which are upon this earth. If God blesses it, well then, there's a blessing. If God curses it, well there's a cursing. But if your pastor blesses something, or curses something, it doesn't make a bit of spiritual difference. 
if I were to offer something to a false god, it doesn't make a bit of spiritual difference. Because it's nothing. It's false. That's what Paul is saying here. Notice that he specifically mentions not just that which is called on earth a god, but also that which is called in heaven a god. So Paul is including spiritual influences here like Satan, whom pagans worship as well. Even Satan is nothing more than a creation of God. Satan has no more power within himself to bless and to curse than you do. And all that Satan does, whether in the world we see or in the world we do not, is only an outworking of the temporary authority that God has given to him on this earth. So, in the Old Testament, we see kings blessing and cursing, and those things come to pass. We see that um, Balak wanted Balaam to curse the nation of Israel so that that curse would come to pass. Balaam ended up not being able to curse Israel, but only bless Israel. You say, well, there's a man that's blessing and cursing. Yes, with the power of God behind it. The blessing or the cursing was not rooted in Balaam, it was rooted in God. And that's why people came to him, because they knew that he had God's ear. And so when he blessed someone, he blessed someone with the authority of God. When he cursed someone, he cursed someone with the authority of God. There was nothing in the man that was special, it was only the God that the man served, and that was Jehovah God. So only God can bless, only God can curse. Even those things offered to these heavenly false gods are not inherently made wrong by virtue of their associations. Now, we've already talked about associations in our lawful but not expedient series. We see things in this world like music and entertainment and clothing and they are without a doubt dedicated unto false gods, are they not? Much of the music industry, in fact, physically, literally, openly, unabashedly dedicates itself to Satan in the demonic realm. We who have knowledge understand that these things are not wrong inherently because of their association or their dedication to Satan. It's not because they've dedicated it to Satan that it's wrong, but it's because in its dedication to Satan, the outworking of it is in fact, the fruit of it is wrong. It's morally wrong. We're not speaking about that today. We're not speaking about things that are morally wrong. The outworking of them, it's not just that they're dedicated to something wrong or that they've been offered to something wrong, but the outworking, such as the music of this world or the appearances of this world or um, the elements, uh, entertainment of this world, the outworking of it is physically wicked. We know that that's wicked and we need to stay away from it. But something such as meat. Meat has no moral, intrinsic moral value or immoral value. You can't look at a cow and say, that's an immoral cow, that one should not be slaughtered. You can't look at a piece of meat and say, that piece of meat is wicked. As opposed to this piece of meat, which is good. Can't do that. It doesn't have intrinsic moral quality. And it cannot, it will not, as we know, because there's only one God, obtain intrinsic moral quality based on whether or not it's offered to a false God. And that's what Paul is speaking of here. We spent a great deal of time over those several weeks considering how certain activities and events uh, which were lawful may not be expedient and should be avoided, but these intrinsically amoral qualities such as food 
uh, objects that have no inherent moral morality are not immoral by association any more than something is moral by association. And we would never say that something is moral by its association. So we should not make something immoral by association either. Chapter 7, or in, in verse 7, Paul says this, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as the thing offered unto an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. See, the problem with our understanding of these issues is in part presented in verse 7, that though we understand the principles of association and the freedoms we have in Christ, not every believer does. And so while knowledgeable believers have no problem eating this meat, which has been offered unto an idol, seeing that an idol is nothing and there is no difference between meat offered to an idol and meat that is not offered to an idol, those whose consciences are said here to be weak can be defiled by eating this meat. Have a problem with eating this meat. Now, let's talk about this idea of a weak conscience for just a moment. This is not intended to be some sort of insult. This is not intended to be some sort of put down there a lesser person. It's simply speaking of um, those who have not learned their freedoms in Christ or those who have not learned to appreciate their freedoms in Christ or those who um, have decided that those freedoms in Christ are not something that they, not a direction that they want to go to, go into, not a direction they want to pursue. This is not a bad thing. A Weak conscience is not necessarily a bad thing. Because these men and women do not understand or do not appreciate their freedoms in Christ, if they were to partake of that meat, they would think that they were doing something wrong. They would think that because this meat has been indeed consecrated unto a false god, that in eating it, they would do something wrong and their conscience is therefore defiled. That word there literally meaning to stain or to soil or to die. That they, they would truly be offended in their conscience if they were to do that. So there are some Christians whose consciences are defiled because they still associate the meat with the idol and yet they have eaten that meat. Their conscience tells them that by eating that meat, they are doing something wrong, that they are reverencing that false idol, and so they offend their conscience. Romans chapter 14, verse 23 tells us this, He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If anything a man does cannot be done in good conscience, then it is sin to him. That's what the Bible teaches. That if you do something and you think you are doing wrong by doing it and you do it feeling as if by doing it you're offending God and you're, you choose to do it anyway, well then isn't your heart intending to offend God? Even if it is not inherently sin, if you are choosing to do something you think is sin, then you are exalting yourself against God by choosing to do that which you believe is wrong. And so if a person, if a believer thinks something is wrong, even if we um, who have knowledge know that it's not, and he does it thinking it's wrong, he has hurt his conscience, offended his conscience, and if it's not a faith, it is sin to him. So while we place sin as anything we say, do, or think that offends the character and the nature of God, 
And that level of sin is, is objective. It's sin to you, it's sin to me, sin is sin. There is also a level of sin that is subjective. Something that I could be doing sinfully that you might not be. Because I think it's wrong. And if I do it thinking it's wrong, then I am doing it with the intent of rebelling against God. So it's wrong to me. Whereas you do it in Christ, knowing that you're not rebelling against God, it's not wrong to you. We could give numerous examples. At Pensacola Christian College, where I had my undergraduate degree, there were people that came from all walks of life there. And there are some young ladies there that had never worn pants. There are other young ladies there that did wear pants. Now at PCC, you weren't allowed to wear pants. But as far as their home life was, uh, women weren't, men were. As far as their home life was concerned, these, some of these women had never worn pants before. Some of these had. Now, we have a myriad of ladies in this room, some of them wearing pants, some of them wearing skirts. We have taught on this issue. If you've taken the new members class, you know where we stand on this issue. We do not believe that women wearing pants is wrong. We do not believe that it's sinful. We look at the Word of God. We compare Scripture with Scripture. We understand the liberties we have in Christ. We understand that a woman can still be feminine and can still show the distinctions of her femininity while wearing pants. We draw certain lines where we believe they need to be drawn as far as modesty and tightness and all of those things are concerned because we want to be a a proper reflection to God. My wife and I worked at the rock wall at PCC. And we had gotten to the point at the rock wall where we had convinced the administration, look, the, the, the ladies need to wear pants when they climb a rock wall. Skirts certainly don't work and culottes don't work either. It just doesn't work when you're climbing a rock wall. You need to have something that hugs the ankle. You need to have something that's, that's a bit tighter than culottes or skirts. And so they, they allowed women to wear pants at the rock wall. Every once in a while, we'd have a young lady come who was not allowed to wear pants. And when that situation would come, sometimes her friends would say, well, your parents aren't here, just do it. Your parents aren't here. They won't know. Just just put on the pants. There's nothing wrong with it. Just do it. To which we would reply, no, you go get your parents' permission or you don't wear pants. See, because though it's not wrong for a woman to wear pants, if she is going to be disobeying her parents by wearing pants, then it's wrong. If she is going to be offending her conscience because she has grown up her whole life thinking that it's wrong for her to wear pants and she's going to put a pair of pants on, then she should not put those pants on until she reconciles it with Scripture. And until she sees the liberty. And until she lives in that liberty. And what Paul is teaching us today, and I'm kind of all over um, um, jumping to my application several times, is this. That if you are the one that's trying to convince a person to do something that they don't feel they ought to do, then you are defiling their conscience and you're sinning not just against them, you're sinning against Christ. And we're going to see that in just a moment. This truth, this truth is more important than your liberty in Christ. Those sitting around you right now are more important than you are. Their conscience is more important than your liberties. That's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 8. 
Verse 8, Paul says, Meat commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. We are not made better because we exercise our liberties, nor are we made worse because we don't exercise our liberties. That young lady is not made better because she refuses to wear pants, nor is she made worse if she did wear pants. That's not the issue. The issue is not whether we are placed at an advantage or a disadvantage. The issue is whether or not we will be spiritually stronger or it's not whether we'll be spiritually stronger or weaker. Take a look at what it is in verse 9. But take heed, lest any, by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. The issue is whether or not we are going to cause a brother or a sister in Christ to stumble. That word stumbling block literally means a hindrance or an obstacle. That the thing which matters most as believers among the brethren in this life is to make sure that as Christians, we are not being a hindrance to the faith of other believers in Christ. Your brother or sister is more important than your liberty. Verse 10, For if any man see thee, which hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? So here's the scenario that Paul says we must avoid. We have knowledge. We're eating meat offered unto idols. And in doing so, another brother who thinks it's wrong sees us eating meat offered to idols. And he says, well, if he's eating meat offered to idols, then I guess I will too. And though he doesn't know why it's right or if it's right, he still thinks it's probably wrong, but he sees you doing it. And so he's emboldened to do it. And as he does it, his conscience is defiled because he's eating meat offered to idols, which he thinks is wrong, even though you know it's not. He thinks it is. His conscience is offended. He is sinning before God because he saw you exercising your liberty. How is his faith destroyed, you ask? Perhaps it's that he'll be racked by guilt and become ineffective for Christ. Perhaps he will feel as though he has been taught lies and he'll walk away from the faith. I think that's the big one. How many young people have I known who lived a life where their parents were very protective? They got out of their parents' authority and they realized that the Bible doesn't say all the things, that they, all, all the standards that they had growing up, the Bible doesn't really say that. And instead of saying, okay, well, these were the liberties that we had and we didn't have and this is why we had them and didn't have them and now I have more knowledge, praise the Lord, I can live in the liberties I, I know now. They say, ah, Christianity is a sham. It's a lie. It's nothing but social conditioning, behavior modification. I'm out. I'm done. And because they had a bunch of Christian friends around them who convinced them of their liberties in a wrong way and offended their conscience, they were offended to the point where they left the faith. We need to be careful, folks. Because if we are just blindly asserting our liberties to those who are the weaker brethren, weak in the faith, those who don't have the same understanding of our freedoms as we do or our liberties, we might just alienate them from the faith. What a tragedy it will be one day if we had to stand before God 
and see those that were alienated from the faith because of our selfish, proud attempts to assert our liberties in Christ. Verse 12, But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. It's not just that believer you're sinning against. You are sinning against Christ. So, my liberty in Christ is not just about freedom. Your liberty in Christ is not just about freedom. It's also about responsibility, folks. With your freedom comes responsibility. Even if I am exercising my freedoms properly, I can sin against Christ by disregarding the conscience of the decisions of my fellow believer. So, Paul's conclusion was, is found in verse 13. Wherefore, he says, If meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. This is the extreme end of the spectrum of what must be done, if necessary, in order to keep our brethren from being offended. Paul says, If I have to go so far as to never touch meat again for the rest of my life, I will do it, if only to preserve the conscience of my brethren. Now, is that always necessary? No. It's not always necessary. But if it's necessary, Paul says, I will do it to preserve the conscience of my brother. Paul's personal determination was that if he is under a circumstance where exercising his liberty would make his brother to offend, then he will not exercise his liberty in Christ. A brother's conscience more important than my liberty. Exercising charity, therefore edifying a brother or a sister in Christ is more important than than exercising my personal freedom in Christ. Let's apply briefly this morning. Consider number one. Associations do not cause something spiritually neutral or spiritually proper to become spiritually sinful. Paul's teaching here makes it very clear that the meat offered unto idols is not sinful by association. When there is no inherent spiritual element to something, things like meat or drink or technology or fabrics or makeup or any of those sorts of things, we are not inherently guilty by partaking in them. And I mention these things because there are various portions of Christianity and this church is on the conservative end of Christianity. As a matter of fact, we'd be labeled extremist in many uh, corners of Christianity. We're not. But we are on the conservative end of Christianity and so uh, in our circles of fellowship there would be people that would reject some of those things. Outright. <coughs> Excuse me. We as believers do have certain causes that we've taken up due to association. We separate sometimes because of association principles. Brands we won't buy, places we won't shop because they're associated with evil people, evil politics, and that's fine. But we also must understand that the, the products are not made evil because of the people behind them. The brand is not made evil because the corporation itself is wicked. It's not wrong for us to shop at Walmart, even though Walmart supports ideological and spiritual ideas that are contrary to our own. If you were to boycott every business that supported Planned Parenthood, if you were to boycott every business that sold alcohol, if you were to boycott every business that had a stake in something Wicked, 
you would have to just plant a farm and live, make your own clothes, eat your food that you planted yourself. That'd be it. You couldn't buy a phone. Not from Apple. Not from Microsoft. Not from Samsung. You couldn't get a computer. You couldn't buy an automobile. You couldn't buy groceries. Because they all have wicked associations, folks. Things are not made wicked by association. Now, if you want to assert that and say, okay, I've got options here. I can either go to the Christian businessman or I can go to the wicked businessman. I'm going to choose the Christian businessman or one that supports family and one that doesn't. I'm going to go to the family supporting one. Do it. Or if you simply say, I'm going to do without because I don't want to support any of them, do it. Do without it. But don't go saying it's sinful for others to go to Walmart. The association principle doesn't work that way. It's not wrong for me to go to a movie theater and watch a wholesome movie just because the movie theater shows movies that are not wholesome. It's not wrong for me to buy from Walmart just because Walmart supports wicked industries. Guilt by association is not a concept taught in Scripture. So if you feel you ought to avoid places or activities or objects because of the associations, bad people, do it. If it hurts your conscience to buy from something because of their associations, then don't buy from them because whatsoever is not a faith is sin. But we know that guilt by association is not a principle explicitly taught in Scripture. However, number two, and this is where Paul is really going with this application this morning, the exercising of your spiritual liberties is biblically constrained to your understanding of your brother's conscience. Pastor, it's their problem they don't understand their liberties in Christ. They need to just read the Bible. They need to just do more study. You're telling me that I must sacrifice my liberties because of the conscience of those who don't understand the Bible as well as I do? No, I'm not telling you that. The Bible's telling you that. God's Word is telling you that. We live in a Christian culture right now that is intent on asserting every liberty that we have in Christ and it's anti-biblical when it comes to the conscience of a brother. Now, what am I not telling you? I am not telling you that you need to go through this life in fear because you've heard that somebody somewhere believes this way and so you're not going to live that way just in case you might come across one of these folks. You cannot be held responsible for that which you do not know. You cannot be held responsible for the conscience of a brother if you don't know that it offends their conscience. But you are responsible for the conscience of a brother once you know that it's a problem. If you know that your brother or sister in Christ doesn't do something or won't go somewhere or you know that their parents think something is wrong, then you are obligated biblically obligated to limit your liberties for the sake of their conscience. And this is not the only liberty that Paul withheld himself from. In chapter 9, Paul will withhold himself not just from the liberty of eating meat, But as we go through the next several weeks, we'll see that he withheld himself from his 
liberties in Christ as a teacher of the gospel and a preacher of the gospel. He withholds from himself the liberty of being supported by the churches. He withheld from himself the liberty of getting married. He withheld from himself several liberties for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about those in the weeks to come. Your ability to go there, your ability to do that, your ability to wear that, your ability to watch that is not as important as your responsibility to reflect the love of God to your fellow believers in Christ. And what you do not want to do is encourage a fellow believer to offend their own conscience because they saw you doing something that they think is wrong or because you told them to do something that their conscience is telling them not to do. So it may be then that among certain company you will need to limit your spiritual liberties for the sake of their conscience. This means that you should take care to understand your brother's conscience. That doesn't mean you need to have a survey for each new believer that comes. What do you think is right? What do you think is wrong? But take care. This means that you should never flaunt your liberties before believers that have a weak conscience. This means you should never seek to embolden a man to do something that their conscience is telling them not to do. Such actions are not enlightening them, folks. This is not pulling them out of their legalism. This is offending their conscience and offending Christ. And when you offend your brother, you do offend Christ. So, if you desire to practice your spiritual liberties, it is your responsibility to do so in a manner that will not cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Practice them carefully. Always placing charity, your love for the brethren, above your own desires. Perhaps it has been that over the past couple of months you've taken great care to set standards in our lawful but not expedient series that are in line with your conscience and your understanding of God's Word. Maybe you have chosen to limit yourself in certain areas of your liberties and you have chosen to live out other areas of your liberties according to the dictates of your own conscience and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Good. May I encourage you now to add another layer to lawful but not expedient. Don't just have the layer of what is best for you spiritually and what is not best for you spiritually. Don't just have the layer of what's best for your family spiritually and not. Add the layer of your brethren. Add the layer of their conscience so that we are not offending our brothers and sisters in Christ. Their conscience in our actions as well. It's essential. It's essential to a proper relationship with God that we not just consider our own conscience, but the conscience of the brethren. Let's pray together.